All right, are you ready? Open up to Genesis 34. It's going to be doozy. Are you ready? Because I'm not. I am not ready. Sometimes sermons are tough when you're an exegetical preacher. You know, you go through a story, and the reason why they're tough is you get to some stories you don't want to go through. That's one of these today. Genesis chapter 34. With all the problems in the world from poverty to war, racial injustice to even our immigration problems, opioid addictions, mass incarceration. Why does it seem like with all of these issues, evangelical preachers focus only on a few sins in their sermons? I was recently asked this by a number of people. I get this asked a number of times. One of them being a pastor himself. He asked me two days ago, I mean two weeks ago, why do preachers spend so much time against this one particular sin in particular? And that sin is, of course, sexual perversion. Seems like pastors are always talking about that. My reply was simple to him. Because we need to. Simple, because we need to. Sex, sexual perversion is the one sin we have direct control over, and it is the one sin that immediately warps the soul. And honestly, not as many preachers address it as you'd think. They really don't. And so that's right. Today, we're talking about sex. It's going to be great. We need to because our country, God bless our country, has a massive, massive problem with it. When the whole month of June is nationally dedicated to gay pride, when drag queens read books to kids in a public library and nobody blinks an eye, or a large portion of our country actually fights for abortion at any stage in a pregnancy, means we have a problem with sex. Not only is our nation obsessed, but our very own homes are being inundated with it, and the way it's being talked about is really nothing close to how God designed it. The world has warped it, and you can find this warped version on practically every movie you watch, every song you hear, and even among workers on the job site. It's everywhere, this perverted version. It's everywhere. And this warped version takes center stage today in our story. So instead of shying away from it, we need to talk about it right away. In a sense, I'm sorry if this is kind of a PG sermon. You might, that's the way it is, parental guidance. It's good to have parental guidance. It's good to go home and talk about it with your kids. But we do need to talk about sex, however, to begin with in its proper light. It's considered a sacred gift that's given by God to be shared with the husband and wife alone. It's sacred. God created sex, and when he creates things, they are always good. They're good. But the proper presentation of it has been stolen away. It's been twisted by our culture, and it's been polluted. And so preachers and parents do their best kind of to avoid it. I don't want to talk about it, because it seems like it's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. No, it's just that it's been profaned. The sacred has been profaned. And so what is intended to be beautiful has been thrown into the gutter and the septic tank. 
and we are going to see how this happens in our story today. So we're going to begin actually in chapter 33, verse 18, and then read to verse 7 of chapter 34. It's the story of Dinah and the Shechemites. Verse 18, after Jacob came from Padan Aram, remember he's leaving the land of Laban, he just got done wrestling with the angel, now he's coming back to the promised land. And he enters the promised land, and he arrives safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means the God of Israel is mighty. Chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Give me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock. So he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. And in... uh, the newer NIVs and ESV says, because Shechem has done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. A thing that should not be done. This whole chapter, it gets darker and darker. It's very depressing. And it's all because of the sinful use of sex. One man pollutes the sacredness of the act, and then in the rest of this story, Everything turns dark. Really bad. And so when I say sex is meant to be a sacred act, I want to begin there. I I mean that God has designed and dedicated sex for a sanctified or a good purpose, a godly purpose. So here's what sacred means. You can go to the next slide. Sacred means this. It means set apart to fulfill a purpose which accomplishes God's goodwill. I have up there something God has designed and dedicated for a good or sanctified purpose. And so sex is a sacred act. It's been given to us for three purposes. And the reason I'm um, illuminating this is I just don't think we think about this anymore. The first, of course, is procreation. Sex has been given to us for procreation. According to Genesis, God wants the world to be filled with people, his image. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He told Abraham he was going to have as many children as the stars in the sky. And in order for this to happen, a man and woman need to have sex. And just a side note, I want to just, I think I need to, I think I need to clarify this. It always takes a man and a woman for conception, just to let you know. Just a side note, I think we need to say that these days. 
But on a purely philosophical level, the ability to reproduce is amazing. God has granted human beings the ability to create life. Or you could say, we transfer the spark of being to another generation. That's incredible. And it's a huge responsibility. God's given that to us. So this, in my mind, is not something to take lightly. To bring a person into the world that carries the image of God and has worth to such a degree that the second person that God had died for that person that was created? You would think rational humans would go about the act of procreation with more fear and trembling, wouldn't you? Don't you think a mature-thinking human would wait to find a person who they loved, respected, admired, to have children and raise a family with before they jump into bed with some random drunk girl or some, you know, foul-mouthed, beer-swilling guy at the bar who's listening to Rolling Stones on a jukebox? I mean, what is wrong with us? Seriously. We are given an amazing responsibility and we treat it like nothing more than we're dogs in heat. Really. What is the second purpose of sex? Union for union. Scripture is very clear on this point. The act of sex unites you to your partner in a very unique way. Genesis 2.24 says, A man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. Implied in that statement of oneness is sexual union. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.15. Go to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, it's right after Romans. Chapter 6, verse 15. And Paul is asking a question, and it's related to what happens during sexual union. And he says in verse 15 of chapter 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Meaning, if I'm a Christian, not only am I part of the body of Christ, but Christ's spirit indwells me. And then he says, um, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Unite them. There's a union going on in the act of sex. So you could say, God has made the act of sex a way of sharing yourself with someone else. It's the greatest gift you can give another person. So, so, why throw that priceless gift away on someone who won't even make a lifelong promise to you? And then the third reason is, God has given us sex for pleasure, to be honest with you. This is where pastors and parents tread very lightly. We're not allowed to talk about it like that. But the truth is, sex is made for pleasure. Genesis 2.25 talks about Adam and Eve being naked and not ashamed. It's the idea there's intimacy and accepted in their, acceptance in their nakedness, vulnerability. The whole book of the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, is eight, eight chapters of steaminess. I mean, it's steamy. I mean, if you preach it, I don't want to preach it in here. It's not the right place. I, I once did a wedding where, um, I'll never forget this wedding, 
the couple chose Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. It's a beautiful poem on love. But if you go past chapter 7, you're getting to troubled waters. And so the person who was reading went past chapter 7, I mean verse 7, and started reading 8, 9, and 10. If you can read it on your own, and they use the word breast in it. Oh, and you could see the groom was kind of all red. <laughs> the mother-in-law, you should have seen her face. It was a bad, it was bad. You might know the people, but I won't say. It was awkward, hot under the collar. <laughs> I'm, what, who said that? There you are. Oh, I won't mention it. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. It was so funny. He doesn't follow directions too well. Stop at seven. Anyhow, the point is God has made sex to be a joy, and in his design for it, he's actually made it where it gets better over time as two people learn not to be ashamed of their nakedness. Those are the three purposes. That's the design. And they're good. They're good. But sex is also like lighting a fire. The whole person gets involved. Body, soul, spirit, and hormones are included. It is quite powerful. It's very powerful. And to make sure it doesn't get out of hand, God has designated a place for that fire to burn. Like a stone fireplace for wood. God has made a place. What is the place? It's right here. To keep the fire of sex properly contained, God made marriage. That is why Hebrews 13.4, you can read this later, says marriage, the marriage bed is pure. It says the marriage bed is to be kept pure, but again, it's inferring the marriage bed is pure. Only fools throw logs on the living room carpet and light it. In the same way, only a fool will have sex outside of marriage. And in God's design, marriage is always and only between one man and one woman. That's his design. Anything outside of that is like throwing burning logs on the carpet. And that is exactly what happens in our story. The act of sex gets out of control. Here's how it's set up. Jacob moves back home. And he moves according to chapter 33, 18 and 19 to a region that's owned by Hamor and his son Shechem. It becomes from this time on known as Shechem. Actually, there's some scholars that believe that Jacob was wrong to stop here. He should have kept going all the way to his home, which was nearby Jerusalem. They argue that this is the land of the Canaanites. He's, he shouldn't have done it. But I'm not sure you can put the blame there because it's still within the boundaries of the original promised land. He found some nice land, it says. He paid some good money for it. So he basically started with his big family and his big herd in this land in the region of Shechem. So we get to chapter 34. And it starts with one day, as it so happens, his daughter Dinah, and you can speculate she's probably either 15 to about 17 years old. So Dinah was meeting up with some local girls. That's what it says in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had been born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. So she's just, we don't know what that means. 
maybe she went to go hang out by the wells with the girls as she watered her flocks, which at that time, a lot of the women would meet by the wells. was the meeting place. Maybe she went to the sandwich shop, the local Chick-fil-A in Shechem, and got, you know, a nice Chick-fil-A. I said that because a lot of you are already sleeping. I don't know, but it isn't wrong to be out and about. Some scholars like to say she shouldn't have been away from home. That's not the point. She didn't do anything wrong. But while she's out, she catches Shechem's eye. Shechem is the spoiled prince of the region. He's the spoiled prince. Amor's oldest son. And spoiled princes think they own the world. A lot of firstborn sons think they own the world. And sure enough, he sees Dinah, probably waiting in line for a, you know, chicken nuggets. And he wants to possess Dinah. He wants Dinah. And by possess, I mean he finds her attractive and wants to have sex with her. So here's what it says according to verse 2. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and he violated her. He raped her. That's what it means. This action in verse 2 is sex way out of control. And when I say out of control, look at the end of verse 7. It's a thing that should not be done. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. So, you could say Prince Shechem is like a lot of modern day males. Instead of properly seeing sex as a way to start a family, he sees it as a momentary pleasure. So when sex gets out of the control, the first thing you can say is you, people will turn procreation into a playground. Shechem's action is the fruit of a selfish and sinful heart. It ends in rape, but I would say for that matter, not just rape, but most sex these days is for a sinful, selfish pleasure. A playground. That's to please me. That's what it's all about. It's what it's for. It's to please me. It's my playground. That's how people view it. Sad, I was at a pastor's meeting last week, and one of the pastors just came into the meeting looking exhausted. I said to him, I said, you doing okay? And he looked at me and he said, I just had a meeting with a married couple that a pastor should never have. And this isn't our pastoral staff. It's, I meet with a group of pastors in the area. I said, what's going on? He said, well, this couple wanted to know what I thought about them using sex toys. And he said, a pastor shouldn't have to talk about that stuff. I agree. And the reason I agree is because we are now taking our lead from the culture where it's turned sex into a game. It's not a game. It's an honorable gift of love. It's a sacred act. Second problem with out-of-control sex, instead of bringing unity, it leaves people feeling used. That's what abuse means. Abnormal use or being used for somebody else's purpose, for their selfish desires. That, look at 6 and 7 and in verse 31. 6 and 7 Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what happened, they were filled with grief and fury. Why? Because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing. Outrageous thing. 
And even verse 31 of this chapter, it ends by kind of summing it up. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? This is a, they're using her for their pleasure. It's abuse. Taking from someone to only please self leaves a person feeling empty and ruined. One psychologist had said that selfish sex always tears off a little piece of another person's soul. Damage is always done. That is why I believe um, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4. Go there real quick. This is a really important chapter or verse. It's almost like some Christians didn't even know this is in there. Or they ignore it altogether. 1 Thessalonians 4. Starting in verse 3. It is God's will, this is 1 Thessalonians, it's after Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means set apart, made holy, live different than the rest of people. You should avoid sexual immorality. That each one of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable. That means live like you're a noble person, a son of God, a brother or sister of Christ. Well, how is that? Well, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. But if you look at the end of verse 5, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Wronging his brother is abuse. That means acting deceitfully, taking advantage, and stealing from them. Stealing what? Their purity. Thievery. So what this is sum up is sex outside the context of marriage is plain and simply deceit. You are lying and stealing from the other. Rape, in the case of the story we read, is violent stealing. But the hookup culture we are living in also is leaving people cynical and emotionally vacant as well because it's just using. It's, a, it's use. The reason is that people are being used. It's kind of like a lemon. You squeeze all the juice out and people are left feeling empty, lost, when sex is out of control. And then finally, what we learn, really, and you can go back to the story, the pleasure that was meant to come through sex turns into pain. Sexual abuse, like rape, will scar a person for life. I have found many women who want nothing to do with men because they are usually hiding scars from feeling used. I also believe, I would even say most gay men and lesbian women usually are scarred. In this story, 3427, look at verse 27. It's a label now Dinah forever has to carry. Verse 27 of Genesis 34. Sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies, looted the city where their sister had been defiled. So she's considered now because she was slept with unclean. And it's not her fault. It wasn't her fault. 
Spoiled princes think they own the world, and sure enough, he possesses Dinah and he defiles her. That brings pain. So then how should we deal with out-of-control lives? How do we deal with the fire that's out of control? When we read of our nation, it's wide It's wide when it comes to perversion, hookup culture, hear that the rape culture in our colleges, how should we respond? Should we respond with just a yawn? Oh, who cares? Should we respond with a cold apathy and indifference and just look the other way and say, I... I see nothing. Should we laugh along with what's going on in spring break? Where? That's just boys will be boys. I think the proper perspective when we see it rightly is how Dinah's brothers view it. Look at verse 7. It's very interesting. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what happened. So they come into the field, they hear their sisters rape. They were filled with grief and fury. You ball these up together and you have rage or outrage. And I would dare say, rage is right. Because the idea is their grief basically is the response of something's been stolen. My sister's innocence has been stolen and that, that grieves me. It's not what I wanted for her. It's not what I wanted for my daughter. That's grief. Something's been lost but it's also rage and fury. A line has been crossed and should never have been crossed. In, uh, in verse 7, the word disgraceful has really the idea that is a, it's a rage that is right. This word is used in Deuteronomy 22. If you read 20 through 22, it talks about the different sexual sins that deserve stoning. And God says they're disgraceful or outrageous acts, so bring the person outside and stone them. So, you could say this. The hashtag MeToo movement is exactly right. They're just 3,000 years behind what the children of God have been saying all along. It's finally caught up with them. We'll talk about that in a second. But the problem with this story is the brothers let rage get out of control. You need self-control when you're that furious. And if you don't have self-control and contain that rage... It will turn into retaliation, and retaliation is always wrong. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and sin not. The implication is the problem's not the anger, it's what we do with the anger once we feel it. And retaliation only makes the fire work. It's like worse. It's like trying to put out the fire that's in your living room with gasoline. It just, whew, it just explodes it. Watch how this happens in the story. Watch what retaliation does. Causes things to go from bad to worse. First of all, Dinah's brothers scheme and plot behind their dad's back. They want to get back at Shechem. So if you look at verse 11, then Shechem said to Dinah's father, he wants to marry her. He, he said, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. 
Make the price for the bride a gift I am about to bring as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. So he wants to, in a sense, do what's right. But the brothers are mad. Verse 13, because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. So they're, they're deceitful, which means they're starting to scheme. They come up with the devious plan starting in verse 14. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. So they're thinking about it. Huh, circumcision, that's what we'll do. And watch what happens. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. And so verse 18, the proposal seemed good. And then you get to 24, 29. So they get circumcised. All the men in the city get circumcised. And Derek talked about this, so you should know what this means. But it's, for men, it's a bad thing. And it takes a while to recover from this. In verse 24, all the men who went out the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem Every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them are still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting, unsuspecting city, killing every male. So while the men are recovering and they can't move, in come Dinah's two brothers, Simeon and Levi, and wiped the city clean for the defilement of their sister. This is retaliation gone bad. And it gets so bad that look at what Jacob says in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanite and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my house will be destroyed. And that stench remained for years and years and years. Hatred towards Israel because of the sin. Retaliation gone crazy. In our culture, there is so much out-of-control sex going on that there is ample rage and what I would say righteous anger to go around. Some of the stories you read these days, if it doesn't make you crazy, I don't know what would. But most people don't know how to handle it. I'd say when hurt, when people are hurt from abuse, sexual abuse, they wrongly blame and hurt a culture and often will blame the people who had nothing to do with it. There is a backlash on men these days because of so much sexual abuse and what I would say hook up cultural backwash. It's, it's kind of what's happened is we, we have the sexual freedom and it's kind of been bouncing back on us in a nasty way. So instead of listening to God and trying to understand the root of the pain, our society is retaliating a group of people, a color of people, instead of owning the problem and finding actual solutions to a problem. The sexual revolution that started in the 60s has caught up with us, leaving us a trail of broken and used and abused people, men and women included. You know, in the 60s, just say, hey, have all the free sex you want, but it, it's it's actually stacking up now. And the, you know, basically the sins are coming back to bite us. 
one of the answers, I think, is um, we're told to believe now the LGBT leaders in saying now their solutions are good solutions to this abuse, you know, this being attracted to the same sex. But to me, in my mind, if you really look into it, I'll just be honest with you, the LGBT movement is nothing more than a manipulation of vulnerable people into worse exploitation. It's bad. And I would say the gay agenda is at its roots exploitive. It exploits sensitive, confused, hurt, and damaged people. I believe more than anything, homosexuality is a retaliatory response to our nation's out-of-control sex. And it's like throwing gasoline on a fire and soon it will be impossible to stop the damage. You might say, what damage? What damage could be incurred? Well, look around. Boys don't even know what it means to be a boy anymore. Girls think they're boys. Some boys want to be bears and wolves and unicorns. And you're like, what? Yeah. You talk about messed up. We don't even know who we are anymore. I personally believe Satan's objective is to take the image of God and make it a mockery. And he's doing a great job. Something that was designed for nobility is now something kind of, kind of a joke. We don't even know who we are anymore. The fire's raging. So how do we stop the fire? How do we stop the fire? Truthfully, it must begin with you in your heart. That's where it begins. And to me, the solution's simple, but it, it requires what I would call authenticity and being genuine. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll show you what I mean. 2 Corinthians 7. Part of the book of 2 Corinthians was written to a church who was allowing a reprehensible sexual sin to go on. And it's really kind of, a, it, it's disgusting. You can find it in 1 Corinthians 5. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. So his father got remarried and his son started sleeping with his father's wife. That's 1 Corinthians 5. That's what was going on. It's out of control. It's messed up. So Paul writes this letter. 2 Corinthians is a response to that. And he's writing it, or actually 1 Corinthians is writing it, telling them to be ashamed of themselves. They did. They, they were broken. And so 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is actually kind of following up on the story. And look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. And this is the answer to how we stop the fire. It says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you're made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrow as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done, at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So here's what he's saying. When I wrote to you about that reprehensible sin, you could have turned one of two ways. You could have been worldly sad, sorrowful, which means, all right, I'm caught, I won't do it again. 
Just leave me alone. All right, it's over. We talked about it. It's done. Or you could be full of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when I look into my heart and I realize, I realize I violated a serious, serious line. And so he writes there, he says it leads to repentance where I want to turn. And in verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Salvation is renewal, regeneration. But godly sorrow produces something. Look at verse 11. How do you know you have godly sorrow? Earnestness, that means I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be done with this. Eagerness to clear yourselves, what do, I need, what do I need to do to just be right? I'll start living like that. What indignation? Indignation is I am angry at what I did. There, the, the verse for outrageous act in the Old Testament says it leads God. God calls it an abomination. The idea of an abomination, it's an act that makes him sick. Confession, when I confess, I agree with God. So you could say it like this, when I Think of what I've done. Confession means it should make me sick too. When we engage in an act that makes God sick and we go on without disgust, we become disgusting. So in other words, we need to stop being pyromaniacs. We need to stop lighting the fire. So you could go to the next slide. We need to Stop it because Jesus was set on fire for you. He was burnt by the flames of hell so you don't have to be. I think we have so many screwed up people in our culture because no one listens to God anymore. They don't take the cross seriously. They just don't. And it's coming back to bite them. It's funny more and more you'll now see it. People who were once champions of unrestrained sex eventually are now getting burned by it. Just a few months ago, you probably saw this, the actress Alyssa Milano, who is what I would say is a cool, cool lady, free, easy Hollywood feminist, decided that the Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too movement, needed to get serious about really this issue of abortion, but also letting themselves be had by irresponsible men, being taken advantage by men. We can't have this anymore. So she blew the whistle on it. Here's what she writes. Till women have legal control over our own bodies, we just cannot risk pregnancy. Okay, so what's the answer? Join me by not having sex until we get bodily autonomy back and have men that we respect who want to have children. I'm calling for a hashtag sex strike. Pass it on. Amen. <laughs> Way to go. But what it is, is here's, the, here's how it is. Is God's commands are the way the world is. It's the best thing for you. He's not doing it because he wants to harm you. He's doing it because he wants to protect and provide for you. So when he says abstain, he says it because he knows in the context of marriage he has he has the best gift for you ever. But you got to wait. You got to wait. There was an old cartoon. I'll never forget it. It's an old Porky Pig cartoon. Remember Porky Pig? Kind of 
And Porky Pig was always hungry, and he's walking through an apple orchard one day, and the apples were green, and he can't eat them because they're not ripe. And along came this person, this wolf, who took some apples and spray-painted them red and put them in a bucket. Porky Pig said, oh, that apple looks good. So he bought the whole bucket of apples, they're spray-painted red, and he ate them all, and he was sick the whole rest of the day. And so when somebody offered him a real apple, he didn't want it, they made him sick. When you have sex before you're ripe, it will start, it will start being warped and twisted and poisonous. 